0: This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number forty-three, recorded on February fifth, twenty eighteen. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions, comments, contributions, you'd like to send those into us, send us an email: jim at theaverageguytv. Although. Let me be honest with you. It's the guy across from me that matters. Send him an email. Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can track me down on Twitter, Twitter at J Collis. I don't know why I stuttered there. And you can find Christian at Borg Whisperer. I like that all one word, Borg Whisperer. Just like it sounds, BorgWhisperer. TheAverageGuy.tv, of course, powered by Maple Grove Partners. Web hosting gets secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. Particularly good for podcasters, I, much, I must mention, both Cyber Frontiers and Home Gadget Geeks, the other tech show that we do. Uh, Both come off of the Maple Grove platform. Christian covers both the web and the media hosting, which is just dynamite. Plans start as little as $10 a month, and he'll even help you move the stuff over. Head over maplegrovepartners.com. You will not be sorry. All right. I mentioned him already. He's over there. I just came off of a trip, hung out in the, you can see it over there to the left. Little right. We're in that room, little day bed. Dude, that thing is super comfortable. Thanks for hosting me and welcome. You bet. Um, I'm enjoying my sour patch kids on the
1: fine late Monday evening, uh, ready to talk about whatever whims of security come to our mind tonight.
0: Uh, yeah, I got some. We got some good stuff. I think we are due an update. I uh, got a lot of good, great feedback on your coverage of Meltdown Inspector about a month ago when those came out. We have learned a lot in the last four weeks, <laughs> and there have been some pretty big debacles. Yeah. You know, we we raced to patch this stuff, and then there's been some other things. So I'm going to let you talk about it. Give us a give us an update.
1: Yeah, it's the uh, gift that keeps on giving. I think people were so um keen on being patched and having unknown unknowns that, you know, it was a it was a patching frenzy, but the sequencing of patching quickly kind of took a turn for the strange. Uh Intel's microcode that ended up getting rolled out, really had some kind of buggy and fundamental flaws to it. And so eventually Microsoft had enough with it. And so they wrote their own Windows update that basically disables the Intel update. So, you know, it's kind of unclear at this point what the mitigation is, right? So they're like, ah, well, this thing's doing more harm than good. So we're going to leave your PC unprotected when it comes to that second variant of Spectre that's such a pain in the butt to deal with. Um, humorously, Linux kind of is in a different universe. They released the latest, um, 4.15, which is kind of the latest and greatest Linux kernel. Now, if you're using things like Red Hat or CentOS, you're still going to likely be on the version 3 iteration of Linux kernel, getting the latest patches from the vendor, um, Some distros like Ubuntu and so forth are on version four of the kernel, but TLDR there is that they are also, like the Intel microcode is crap. Um, And so they've been working on trying to implement the uh, retpline fix that Google developed for the Spectre-related mitigations into the kernel. So if you look at, That latest 4.15 release, they do have the Replean mitigation in there. It requires, though, when you build the kernel, that you build it with what's called a Replean aware compiler. So you need to have a um, a new version of GCC. Your kernel has to be built uh, carefully. And so, not many mainstream um, vendors right now are providing, you know, latest version of the Linux four one five kernel kind out of out-of-box experience. Um, CentOS, which I love to use, um, for example, is still on the 3.10 release of the kernel um, of Linux, which is kind of with their heavy modifications on top of it. And, you know, they're still releasing their kernel patches and updates that are probably alleviating some of the pain of Meltdown Inspector, but ideally... Um, I'd love to see a push to get CentOS to just adopt the 415 kernel already and kind of get caught up from that standpoint. Um, From a hardware perspective, Intel has been kind of rumoring that they are looking to design the new silicon itself um, for their next set of chips. They're not really talking about... Any specific products at this point um, or any p- specific upcoming families of CPUs that um, are going to make their way into the production pipeline here in the next year. However, it does seem that they are moving towards the direction of new chips, new silicon won't have the performance impact, obviously, because it'll be fixed in hardware. So I think some people are breathing a sigh of release, uh, relief that long-term Um, This is going to be a fix in hardware. We're not going to be dealing with software. Um, As far as continuing to deal with the baggage of this, I think we're at about the same place. I think the patching frenzy has kind of died down, um, but the impact remains somewhat unclear. Um, We now have boxes that are basically universally patched from Meltdown, which is great. I think Spectre remains the wild card in all of this that will continue to kind of confuse or um, make the situation more painful um, in the coming months, especially as we're continuing to rely on software-only solutions. And Intel really hasn't um, made a clear statement that they're going to do anything to improve their botched microcode rollout. So hard to say where their heads are really at right now.
0: Christian, from a Windows perspective, um, I kind of purposely held off. I know I wasn't supposed to do that, but I kind of smelled this thing. I like, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And I think we've seen this. I've been, I've, I've, done this dance before. And so on most of my PCs, some of them just rolled and picked stuff up, and I haven't had any issues with them. And they're not that critical that I even noticed, to be honest with you. But there was some I held off on just, uh, just because. Um, am I safe? Should I should I roll now? Should I? I mean, what do we do as Windows guys? What do we do now?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're no more um, unsafe now with having delayed that patch than you were when everyone was frenzying to the patch. So it looks like the latest uh, Windows update that came out on Saturday essentially is pushing to deal with. um Kind of turning off the microcode that Intel released. Humorously, Intel is also urging customers not to deploy the firmware updates that they themselves created. So it's kind of a bait and switch tactic because Intel, you know, touted how they're going to have patches in a few weeks for everyone, and they were coming down the pike, and all you had to do is flash, flash, flash those BIOSes. And so now everyone has gone and done that, and they're saying, ah, J.K., actually, it sucks. Uh, You should undo all that. So. You know, we're really at a place where, again, you don't want to be unpatched from meltdown. That's just stupid. Um, You do, however, want to kind of evaluate um, your need for a specter patch. And at this point, they're pretty much recommending not to deal with the mitigations that are being provided right now. I think that means that they're going to be making another stab at this thing this month and next month. Um, but what changes are going to be need to had, and how long that's going to take for them to come to fruition are pretty unclear at this point. Um, so, you know, if you go and do the latest round of Windows updates on consumer platform, you will be in the state I just described, which is your patch from Meltdown, your unpatched from Spectre. And that looks like where we're kind of headed right now.
0: What about on the BIOS side? If I've, if I'm, you know, if I've got BIOSes that need to be updated to to do this, do I do those now or do I wait? I would wait as
1: well because they're essentially in the BIOS deploying the same microcode fix that your Windows OS is delivering, and so all you're really doing by doing the BIOS now is flashing the firmware that they think is problematic. So, um, not a huge advantage to taking the bios flash at this point i do think the bios flash will also help with variant one of specter so you might get some cost benefit there however same same thing it's going to rely on that same fundamental code that may cause you problems so i would say at this point for the windows community focus on the meltdown patch make sure you have it and continue to watch for updates as people duke out what they're going to do with specter
0: yeah, probably smart to have the most current Windows patches in place. I think Microsoft, like you mentioned, has taken control and maybe matters now into their own hands. Maybe that doesn't, maybe they won't do as as decent or worse of a job than Intel has done on this, but I think there's some good advice is probably get those updates uh, kind of installed and updated and, and, uh, Pay attention, I think, moving forward. Gary asked the question, are there is there any evidence yet that there are any uh, exploits actually in the wild? And so if we're not hearing, I mean, if a, a tree falls in the forest and no one's there, you know, does it make a sound? So do we need to worry about it because there's no exploits currently that we know of? Um, I, I
1: always say complacency is invitation to danger. So at this point, there's nothing um, that I've seen on the radar or the horizon. Um I think Spectre is still a little bit too hard to weaponize to a massive audience yet, but that doesn't mean there aren't people actively working on that. Um, so nothing that would make me think uh, tomorrow, jump out of my seat with concern. Um, you know, and even as far as the windows patching, there's a lot of, um, it's, it's really kind of hard to say whether or not you're fully protected with this patch versus that patch. So I, um, one of the things that uh, Microsoft noted about this latest patch, too, for disabling this second variant of the Spectre mitigation, I think it's a download-only patch for that, and some people are saying, ah, oh, hold off, ah, oh, do it. At this point, if your box is working and you're not noticing any dramatic impact, just stay up to date with what's being automatically offered I would only go and download that patch if you're at this point having an issue with your box in terms of stability and you th- and you feel like, oh, it's probably because of the, the Spectre variant patch. Um, there's also CPUs that are just too old to deal with it. So, you know, a lot of people still run, for example, the Bloomfield, you know, the first uh, generation of the Intel i7 and i5. Those types of CPUs never even had a microcode patch issued by Intel, which is surprising to me if you consider how many... CPUs in the marketplace still use those legacy, you know, first gen and second gen, um, I seven, I five, I three processors. So this is a long way of saying, you know, get to the current state of affairs with your windows updates. If you're seeing a stability problem, manually download that update that came out over the weekend. And as far as mitigations or actual attacks that we're seeing in the wild right now, it's nothing that, um, has sent any red flags my way yet. Um, We're just not at a place where Spectre has become weaponized in any remote form to what, you know, the comparable ransomware is, for example.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Gary also mentions, he says, you know, aren't the initial threats more likely to target servers than individual PCs? I mean, that's kind of, that would be the, the most logical footprint to go after first, right?
1: Yeah. You're really not going to see, I think a, a huge uh, target-rich environment for desktops at this point. I think one of the nice things about something like a meltdown is trying to, or even a Spectre, is breaking out of your hypervisor in a cloud environment to then be able to inspect memory addresses across many virtualized um, instances that make up a, a cloud computing environment, right? So when you think about things like VMware or any of the types of, environments that have a hypervisor on them, that is where you introduce a larger attack surface because now all of a sudden, you know, if you can successfully launch like a meltdown attack, for example, um, you can cross boundaries over into other people's uh, virtual instances. Um, As far as something like a Spectre, again, limited more to local process control, um, but still one would argue that the types of processes you would see on a server are probably going to be more of interest than the ones you see on a desktop. The caveat to that being, um, you know, privileged process memory at the end of the day is privileged process memory. So, if your privileged process has your bank account password in it, then that's maybe just as good for me as if it has, you know, whatever else. But I think generally the the targets are going to be more server focused, which is why I think you saw such a huge push on having cloud providers kind of patch early patch often with this, even if there was a performance consideration uh, to be worried about.
0: Yeah. Just more to, more to get to Uh, more bang for your buck, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, You know, it's going to be, we're still seeing the effects of people slowly deal with the performance mitigations that um, are associated with their types of applications. And so whether that's, you know, changing the type of hardware you're on or changing the number of virtual machines you have or maybe optimizing code. I think people have been working to deal with the short-term performance impacts they're experiencing, knowing that in the long term, this is probably going to start to smooth over a little bit.
0: Yeah, and there—if if you're installing one patch and seeing performance issues and new one comes out, likely those future patches are handling some of those performance issues, the uh, you know, disabling current patches that were before it or what have you, right? So it should just get better, you would think?
1: Yeah, and again, you know, performance issues on the desktop are going to be wildly different than performance issues in the, in the cloud. So at most, you're going to see things like video games or intense processing of some kind on a CPU become an issue. But, you know, outside of video games and maybe... Uh, some customized or intense, you know, desktop based applications for the most part, you're really dealing with, um, servers because that's where most of people's compute and and crunch power is going. Right. So it's not going to affect your ability to, you know, run your outlook, run your Chrome, um, you know, do your banking or whatever. It might impact your ability to play a crisis or league of legends at the frame rates of your dreams, but Again, it's pretty specific to the individual software that you're dealing with. So yeah,
0: and really those are GPU bound in a lot of ways anyway. So different kind of different world that those gamers live in. Um, A different kind of attack. Let's let's kind of move on. Interesting. We've we've seen uh, some some interesting um, attempts and actually some success in in ATM theft. I know locally there's also been some problems with card readers like at the pump, right? You think about a gas pump and they're going out and retrofitting these readers in there and stealing people's information. So not just uh, listening to your CPU, yeah. but uh, we've had, some, we've had some real ATM stuff. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is one of the ones that I thought would be fun to pivot to tonight only because we talk so much about um, many virtualized based cybersecurity challenges, but we rarely get to uh, physical and, it almost goes without saying that physical access is the bane of all cybersecurity challenges. So if you have physical access, it's a matter of time before you pwn a machine, not a matter of if. Um, we've kind of taken this to the extreme with ATMs at a pretty interesting way. Um, one of the p- kind of primary examples is that were, you know, several years ago at DEF CON, I think it was DEF CON 18, where they first kind of did a demo introducing this concept of what they call jackpotting, which is essentially you write a a malware that you deploy onto a USB, and then you essentially get that USB stuck into a debug port of an ATM, and then you essentially convince the ATM to do something it's not supposed to do. And before you know it, it's dumping out money like you just won the lottery at a uh, Vegas, Vegas hotel. So um, humorously, the weird thing about that and and think about these devices, right? We've talked a lot about how, you know, many um, embedded devices like IP cameras and otherwise use kind of this reusable embeddable firmware that is kind of cheapo firmware on the masses to you know, start with a stock firmware and then rapidly customize it for a specific device purpose or usage. And ATMs are no better. In fact, you know, you can find plenty of ATMs that run Windows XP Embedded Edition, which is a disaster, right? Um, and, and some OS is even worse than that, right, on ATMs. So the ability to hack into one of these things when you have physical access to it is almost a no-op from the sense that, these operating systems are really not hardened in comparison to where today's technology is. If you think about the fact that we're in the year 2018 and many of the ATMs that you use today are using firmware that was developed almost 20 years ago, it starts to put in perspective the types of defense mechanisms that were available then just aren't a match for the types of malware that people come up with today. Um, You especially start to get into this niche market where some people have more insider knowledge about the types of firmware that certain companies are using for their ATMs. So if they can find a copy of what the software of an ATM looks like, or heck, even worse, buy their own ATM to experiment with, um, all of a sudden you have the ability to basically build that physical weapon to the ATM that is going to become a problem. So this was, this was shown again in DEF CON back at DEF CON 18, um, and that was probably almost six years ago. So, um, you know, pretty substantial proof of concept shown back then, not really seen in the wild or in kind of what we would call real world use um, after that showing. But it slowly kind of started creeping up overseas in Europe and Asia, et cetera. And now it's apparently made its fad debut um, in the United States. So we're starting to see the Secret Service be like, and the FBI be like, hey, TLDR, look out for the fact that people are basically dressing up as ATM technicians, showing up at a gas station or whatever, jamming in these USBs and having a jackpot scenario with the ATMs. It's actually kind of bizarre when you think about it, because there's very little, um, you know, protections or validations for someone, you know, using phishing or social engineering to say, I'm an ATM engineer when walk into wherever, especially because many of these ATMs are owned by third party companies. So the person who owns or runs the gas station or the person who's sitting behind the desk, like they might genuinely have no idea that you are not supposed to be there. Right. Um, as far as they're concerned, they don't even, their store doesn't even own the ATM. Right. Um, so then when you get a guy that you know knows where that USB port is, plugs it in, knows the vulnerability of that certain model of ATM, um, it's kind of the same thing, physical access, bane of all existence. So then it becomes a matter of time as opposed to a uh, matter of opportunity and potential. Uh, it actually makes for a relatively interesting, um, poignant example of cybersecurity where we physically see money moving right when we talk about you know data breaches and thefts it's always like virtual dollars appeared and virtual dollars disappeared well in this case this is probably one of the only cyber attacks I know of where physical dollars start appearing in your hand as a result of the attack um, so this was you know this has gotten a fair uh, surprisingly fair amount of coverage both on uh, Sh- uh, Schneider on security and uh, Krebs on security so it's kind of making its waves as this is the fun thing to do. Um, and a couple guys actually were charged with this federally. Um, I think it was Wyoming. They were Venezuelan nationals who pulled this off. Um, so, you know, clearly, clearly the, this, the street criminals have gotten to the point where this is a, a usable cyber weapon, which is funny because no one would think a USB stick and a, such a small, um, box is a large attack surface but million we're talking millions of dollars basically being lost as a result so arguably easier than trying to virtually break into a bank account
0: yeah in in way more money per for instance I started the segment with the Example of the personal risk we're into: whether I'm going to a gas station and swiping my card, or I'm at a bank ATM, which some of these have these card readers built in, where you know they put a card reader over the card reader and basically read your card going in. Are you seeing? Are are we seeing an uptick in that? Do you know? Have you you been following that at all? Is that also when we think about kind of personal security? Are we seeing more of those happen? Because certainly the hardware is getting smaller. Yeah, it's certainly.
1: still pretty common. I don't have recent metrics on whether or not that has increased as a trend or decreased, but, um, this is pretty standard practice that, you know, installing a plastic skimmed card reader on a gas station is super hard to notice when you're no, you know, most people it's cold outside. They're in a hurry. They jam the card in, they go and wait in the car. And then, you know, the gas is done they go out and they jam it back in and they run in the car. So, um, I always tell people it's best practice to, and I do this whenever I'm at a gas station is to physically put your hand on the reader before inserting your card. And basically just kind of like take your index finger and scratch at every corner of the surface and just make sure that nothing is placed over it or feels loose. Cause those are kind of some telltale signs that it's been tampered with. Um, and that's a good thing to do because chances are number one, the gas station has no idea about it. Um, and two, you're saving other people a lot of headache. You're saving your yourself some headache as well. Um, I think with pin and chip, you know, you're getting, you, you don't have the extent of the problem that we did. But the problem is, you know, one of the number one places where you swipe a credit card is still a gas station because gas pumps physically do not have pin and chip. And I have yet to go to a gas station where I can insert my credit card in using a, a pin and chip. So that just kind of shows you that the mitigation of the technology is only as good as its implementation. And in this case, while it's you know widely implemented in retail stores that you can pin and chip, uh, we still have to go get gas every week or two. So at the end of the day, that still leaves all of us open to some card being potentially read by an unauthorized card reader. Um, You know, it is the mag strip at the end of the day. Like it's one of the easiest things to kind of clean off from, from physical
0: related finances. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It would be interesting to see. I haven't heard about any big ones lately, but uh, there were some news items late last year. It seemed to be real popular. And uh, I I like your idea. I do. I also tap those when I get up there. I just kind of, you know, just kind of, Tap, tap, pull a little bit. Okay, we're good. Swipe the card. Yeah. It's, and it's people
1: might think you're weird, but embrace the weirdness because it's it's a saving move for you in in some cases. And I, I think you'll notice um, that banks are getting a lot better at installing um, pinhole cameras in certain places of the ATM where someone would try to install something so that you can essentially you know, monitor and see if someone's tampering with the machine. Like, I think that's an important feature to have. However, um, you know, there's plenty of people who, um, install pinhole cameras themselves to try to, you know, watch someone typing in their pin, for example. So, you know, I always never feel super confident about, you know, the cameras that I even do see that might be legitimate, Um, so, you know, being protective of the pin as well, is kind of an important element, but, uh, at the end of the day, it's probably pretty consistent. I I don't imagine the problem has gotten worse. I just don't imagine that it's gotten dramatically better yet at this point either.
0: Yeah, I, um, I don't really, I use pins in so few places now, like most of my cards, I've never even activated the pin. So I don't like, I don't even know. I wouldn't even... I wouldn't even know what to use uh, or, or they couldn't even use it that way. So maybe that's uh security by obscurity there since I don't even have, I mean, uh, there is a pin on there. <laughs> I have no idea what it is. Um, I've just kind of stopped. I, I think in most, most of the ways I shop, I'm not using the cards that way. And if I do have to, and then I just don't use that card that a debit card that requires the pin, I'll just pull up my credit card, swipe it or chip it. And then, um, just transfer that money. It's just as easy not to be out there using that pin. So it, uh, it it works well for me that way.
1: Yeah, and I mean, this is one of the things that still has moved kind of slowly for the industry. Is you know, quote unquote, two factor authentication um, for credit cards or for managing financial processing in a physical way still has not really gotten to the point where um even online transactions or protecting of online accounts has gotten so you know the day i see two factor at a uh, grocery store will be an interesting day um but we're certainly not going to see it like a gas station anytime soon because we haven't even gotten pin and chip um but it, it amazes me because there are gas stations that kind of have the customized um you know when you want to get your, you know, a lot of gases get, they give you, you know, five or 10 cents off based on whatever your promo club is or how many groceries you're buying or whatever, whatever the thing is, they usually have a card that you hold up to a a scan reader and it scans it. I'm like, well, you know, if they, if they don't have a problem setting that up, then why do they have a problem setting up PIN and chip if they're already customizing their, their point of sale systems like that? So
0: I do love I, I do love the thought of two-factor. That would be super easy to do, actually. And, you know, it would you would swipe the card and get a notification, especially at the pump, where you have a little bit of time, right? You swipe that card, and you've got exactly. some time. And it could, it could easily send you the two-factor on that. And so rather than – I don't know. I, I don't know how any of that stuff works. But it seemed like two-factor would be a pretty good implementation at the pump.
1: Yeah, I always wondered, too, if people could do I, – I always thought it would be even more interesting to do – Uh, two-factor based off of your uh, license plate. So, you know, if you're at the gas station driving a certain car with your license plate, certain credit card, you know, maybe should kind of match or, you know, be kind of close. But I think that would be pretty hard to enforce.
0: Totally. And that's, you know, you're not always at the same place and the equipment would be expensive. Who knows? Who knows? Right. Well, I you know, it seems like gas fraud only gets big when the prices go way up. And then everybody's trying to, you know, figure out ways to hack the gas machines, you know, the gas pumps so that they can, you know. But uh, relatively speaking, gas in the United States has been pretty cheap over the last year or two. Yeah. And even at 250 today that most people are, I think I paid $250 uh, for just the other day. Most people are pretty content. That's okay. That's a pretty good price. We'll just kind of leave it there. So those things kind of come and go kind of based on the price of gas, I think. Uh, and and who's trying to do fraud there because you know a big a big tank that can be a couple hundred man, that can be 100 to uh, 150 bucks on yeah, if, I mean, when it, gas we're is we're, 4 or 5 bucks a gallon
1: exactly when we're at 4 dollars a gallon yeah, yeah easily some of your larger vehicles could break 100 yeah um it's it's kind of funny though too because you know sometimes these newfangled vending devices um end up being more trouble than they're worth a classic example of of my childhood is I remember in eighth grade, it was when Coke had released the new vending machines that first had the, the conveyor belt arm that basically when you bought your drink, it was a full horizontal bar arm that basically moved up the vending machine vertically to the row where your item was, dropped the item on the row, the arm would move back down, and then the arm would start pushing the item into the receptacle, and Coke thought they'd built this great machine because it you know it had sensors for when the, the product got jammed or when it had to requeue or do whatever. So of course it didn't take long for kids to figure out that if they stuck their hand in the machine where the where the bottle was going to come out and basically kept the bottle for coming out, it would stay on the arm and it would go down back to the bottom of the machine. And the the Coke machine was so quote unquote smart that it was like, Oh, I didn't vend the product. And so what would it do? It start spitting your change back out of, Oh, here's a refund. And then what would they do? They'd put that same money back in. The old product was still sitting on the arm. They'd put the same money back in, put a second item. It would drop it on the arm and then they would leave it unblocked. And then two items would come out for the price of one. So, you know, whether Coke liked it or not, they basically introduced a, uh, a uh, baked in quote unquote design feature into their new systems that um, crafty kids of the uh, illicit type could get a two for one special on their Coke products. And it was funny because they had specifically built these systems in part to kind of be a little bit more reliable and and quote unquote secure in vending. And it turned out to be kind of a joke. Um, So, you know, I hope we can not repeat those types of mistakes with something like gas pumps, but just goes to show you that people's good intentions with design choices don't always translate to uh, one-on-one improvements in security. No, no, indeed.
0: Well, and there's also, um, you you can hack anything, right? I mean, it's just, the more, it seems like the more convenience you add in, uh, the easier it is to hack. You know? And hey, if so, a eighth grader can do it, then, you know, it's... it's how long did it take to, for them to figure that out?
1: Uh, it really couldn't have been that long i mean i remember when these machines first started rolling out in in classrooms and high schools and it was it was it was pretty popular thing to do and i think it took several iterations of them building that machine before they finally as a company caught on to what the hell was going on it was just it was really bizarre to be honest um and, and you know it just it goes to show you too that the velocity and the pace at Not that I'm going to start comparing this to a vending machine, but, you know, generally speaking, what I always say is that the price of velocity is always security. And because the internet is growing at such an infinitely faster rate than almost any other thing I can think of in the economy, um yeah, the features are always outgrowing the ability for security to catch up with it. So until there's a paradigm shift in the underlying way that we do, quote unquote, the internet and quote unquote, computing, um, you're always going to be behind in security relative to the state of the art of the technology itself. Um, And we see that time and time again. Um, Just look at really the heart of where you get at with Spectre and Meltdown is that, you know, the ideas of doing branch prediction and, and these types of techniques to improve processor performance in a way is kind of tinkering with the curve that basically says every two years we can half the size of a CPU and double its performance, right? Because we know we're getting towards the end of Moore's Law. And you know, these types of technologies like uh, KP are like having the branch prediction and the ability to anticipate um, execution steps that's something that isn't necessarily a, a feature of the just the improvement of the technology itself so much as it is an optimization feature of how we can squeeze more out of something that probably wasn't intended to be squeezed as far as it had. Now, of course, that particular design capability has been in processors for over 20 years, so it's maybe not the best example, but it goes to show you that the feature is always built first, and even if people tell you that security was one of the first design decisions, oftentimes either that's not a true statement or they do so at the cost of faster velocity and faster productization. So people who unfortunately put security first can oftentimes be penalized and not being the first to market. Um, And so when you're weighing being first to market against being the most secure, um, sometimes people will take a gamble on being uh, as secure as they are comfortable, which yeah. is a guarantee of nothing in the world of cybersecurity.
0: Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, quit screwing with your mic. I hear all that. Sorry. <laughs> That's a feature. <laughs> That's a feature. Uh, we have been spending a ton of time talking about crypto uh, over at uh, Home Gadget Geeks. A couple times on the show, Mike and I have been talking a bunch about it uh, post-show. And, uh, and we just, that's just been a convenient place to talk about it. Well, Christian, we've gotten involved. We've been both GPU mining and now we're burst mining on proof of capacity and some hard drives and stuff. Tons of fun. Uh, neither lots of money made nor lots of money lost at this point. But I kind of want to get your take because I get this question from the community all the time, to be honest with you. We've been talking about it. We haven't brought you on the show uh, to talk about it. But everyone's like, what's Christian say? So, what does he say? What does Christian say? When we think about the current state, and really crypto comes in two forms, I think. There's interesting work that's being done with the blockchain. Like, how are we going to, you know, what can the blockchain be used for? How can it be used and deployed successfully? What can it secure? What can it track? How can it be a ledger? All those are super interesting. That's one discussion. Then there's crazy coin side and trading and some of those kinds of things. So I'm more interested in hearing your take from the blockchain side first. As you look at the work that's being done out there, kind of give me your, you know, where are we at? I, I told you in the pre-show, I think that we're at a spot where finally the blockchain is being tested, honestly, for what it yes. is. Oh, absolutely. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the actual... You know, For years, blockchain was allowed to operate without any real, what we would call QA and test, honestly. I mean, yes, the founders knew that, yes, this technically works, but um, I call that the founders did what we would refer to as the unit testing of Bitcoin in the blockchain. They really didn't do the integration and the functional testing, which is what we, the users, are now doing and governments are now doing. And so I think what you're finding is... People are comfortable with the capabilities of it. It certainly is a platform that brings a plethora of new opportunities with it. Um, I think it also brings a set of of concerns with it that um, are are apparel to, to some you know real world implementations of blockchain. And so I, I think one of the maturing elements of the blockchain has been the smart contracts because I think ultimately the future of a lot of what blockchain is doing for real world consumers has to lie within the modular, secure, and maintainable elements of designing and building your own smart contract. Because I think at the end of the day, when you want large corporations and entities to act on the blockchain in an automated way, much the same way they would operate in an automated way when they want to sell off stocks in the stock market, like we saw today, you need a essentially a contract vehicle that allows you to really take control of something that is very hard to have visibility into for us as humans, right? The size and the scope of the blockchain is getting so large now that any one human's ability to analyze that data without making it their full-time day-to-day job is becoming rapidly infeasible. And so having the contracts in place that allow you to scale up um, financial transactions, I think is something that a lot of enthusiast blockchain folks don't necessarily care about. Um, They're much more interested in the mining or the trading or the currencies or kind of the hobbyist things. But the real evaluation of the technology is not in those things at all. Um, Quite frankly, um, governments and banks and, you know, big enterprises could care less about how people are choosing to mine or run the transactions themselves. They care very deeply about maintaining the principles of, banking and financial markets, and also maintaining, you know, traditional properties of cybersecurity within the blockchain, confidentiality, integrity, availability, et cetera. These are all fundamental tenets of security that should be completely reproducible and testable in the blockchain. And so I think smart contracts is a great proving ground for the technology because we've seen examples already where in the last couple of years, um, companies have fessed up to saying, yeah, there's, you know, we found in essence vulnerabilities in people's smart contracts. Well, that's a huge problem, right? If I'm a company that writes a smart contract that says, if you fail to deliver X, Y, Z capability to us on such and such a date, then your wallet's going to automatically send X amount of dollars to our wallet. And that contract gets violated by a malware attack um, a bug in the way the contract is written and interpreted. Um, that's a huge problem, right? Because the, the reparation for that is much more unclear to me right now than it is with physical financial markets. So like, if you think about something like PayPal, um, you know, if I'm the consumer and unsatisfied with the product I got, um, you know, I hit the refund now button, or if I'm a if I'm a a, a seller and I know there's a problem with a customer and I and I refund the purchase, you know, there's a very kind of straightforward procedural way for me to do that. Have an audit trail of it. Watch where the money goes. Um, with blockchain, if there's a problem with that capability of basically purchase and then roll back, it rapidly introduces a problem where the currency and the money is moving so quickly that it may not be this static point in time transaction that you can easily roll back. Um, and so I actually think one of the proving grounds for blockchain, and this is probably something that no one talks about, but it's in my head at least, is verifying some of the properties that we first Um, required for database systems, like the first Oracle database, the first SQL database. We wanted to verify properties like um, atomicity, durability, integrity, etc. Kind of actually proving that in the real world that you can commit a transaction and roll back a transaction in an infinite sequence. That would be an interesting proof to see, um, especially because... I think proving it and, and showing, you know, here are the types of vulnerabilities that you can experience. Here's the right way to design these smart contracts to mitigate some of these impacts. This is hugely important. When governments evaluate the efficacy of the currency, their number one concern is how the hell do we see into this thing? How do we regulate this thing? How do we Protect our own financial markets from this becoming destabilized if we start putting all their eggs in it, right? Those are the three top concerns. It's not how profitable is mining going to be? Is it going to be called Dogecoin or Bobcoin? Like they could care less, honest to God. Um, What they care very much about is the reproducibility. And again, it's kind of a catch 22 in the sense that Bitcoin and Cryptocurrency itself, in many ways, had that initial element of mysteriousness, like it was designed, it was a decentralized model, it wasn't necessarily designed to give you transparency in banking. And yet now, we're seeing the clash of those two worlds, which is, you know, I think, even the most conservative adopters readily see the capability and the potential for the platform um but i think the real world concerns remain which is um money we've already seen cases where millions of dollars vanishes on this platform and it's happened for a variety of reasons one is as simple as hell i lost the usb drive that had that bitcoin that's worth 50,000 on it and i threw it out that sounds really stupid um i know it's not as far fetched as i think because Big Bang Theory did an episode on it, which means it must be true. Um, But, you know, so if I can throw out money with like the equivalent of basically withdrawing, you know, $5,000 from an ATM and then throwing it at a dumpster fire, that's kind of weird. If I can make millions of dollars disappear by introducing a bug in the blockchain and a smart contract, et cetera, in a way that that money is not traceable and therefore not recoverable, then I can't assure to my customers that their money is ever truly safe unless they cash it back out of that exchange. At which point you're basically saying you're, you're defining a core principle, which is that the currency itself only has its value when it is exchanged out of the medium. Meaning a big test for blockchain and cryptocurrency is how much direct consumer to consumer goods will be sold and purchased where it only transacts through cryptocurrency before um, a product is delivered, meaning it never touches a physical paper currency. And if you can do that at scale, then it raises a much more fundamental tenet, which is what was the point of having dollar cash currency to begin with? And I think a lot of people were starting to answer that question before blockchain took off. Now blockchain is taking off and it's only confounding the problem further. Um, but, you know, think about, you know, where your money goes today, you deal with most of your money on plastic. Now you deal with very little money with on hand cash. So we've gotten used to that model, but it's still very kind of audible, very traceable. The numbers go here, the numbers go there. The source and destinations are always kind of very clear. Um, I like to think of it as like having a SSL or HTTPS certificates on a website, right? Right. You sign a website's domain name and it gives a certificate, and that gives you a certain trust authority so that you know when you go and you visit that website, they are who they say they are and you trust them. Well, you know, doing finances on the internet is very much the same way. I see that $500 goes from. Um, My employer's account to my bank account. I see that bank account as SunTrust or First America or whatever. I then realize, oh, this is an institution I trust with my money. I see how that money is moving from different institutions over time. Um, And the combination of the auditing, the trust I place in these institutions, and the ability to manage my money and invest my money gives me as a consumer a certain confidence that, hey, if tomorrow I want to move that $500 back out of SunTrust into wherever, that's a one-click, no-think operation for me. I think for most consumers, when you look at blockchain, it is not that simple. Um, I think people would say, well, of course it is. Here's my wallet. Here's their wallet. I send Bitcoin to that wallet, and we're good. Um, you know, and the only problem with that is when a lot of these wallets have no real vetting behind them, anyone can go and create a wallet, right? So when you think about HTTPS, uh, uh, HTTPS certificates, right? Yeah, it's kind of true that almost anyone can, quote-unquote, create an SSL certificate, but some higher trust authority up here is still signing it and saying, you know, we validate and we trust in what what is being signed here. Um, You know, I can't just go and open a bank account for myself. Like I cannot open Bank of Christian in my apartment and start sending money to this Bitcoin address here, right? Whereas that is a fundamental tenet that people just have overlooked in blockchain is that there is no validation of source and destination wallets. Money just moves. Um, and so regardless of whether or not you see it as legitimate or not, blockchain inherently has many properties of a black market that you know people may or may not want to exist uh, or admit to. And that in and of itself, I think, poses a risk to the viability of it because at the end of the day, if you want this to be the next large scale whatever, you got to get governments on board. You have to get big banks on board. And so, in the last six months, I think Bitcoin has had some mild successes and, and setbacks with it. Um, you know, some of the successes being that the first world bank basically started saying, "Okay, we're going to go in on the Bitcoin exchange. Whatever, we're 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 here to play this game." Um, I think you saw that. The valuations of Bitcoin got wildly stupid high, um, and even if you're like, "Oh, it crashed hard," um, you know, you're still probably making more money on it than if you had started a year ago with that same dollar amount in Bitcoin. So, it's had some viability and growth in the size of the currency, um, but you know, there's some danger spots here. And one one of the places I call out in show notes tonight is. China is pretty much on the brink of saying, "Sorry, guys, but uh, we think we're going to outlaw cryptocurrency in the in the country of China." And this is exactly my point, which is, if you don't get governments backing, I'm, and I'm I'm referring to world governments because we all participate in where the money goes, right? Um, if you don't get the backing of world governments to play this game then you are further supporting the argument that you are kind of becoming the rogue marketplace um, because your money will always be in a place that's never officially seen by a government entity that moves in a way that's decentralized and anonymous and may or may not be formally seen in whatever your government's taxation system of choices. Um, and so these are a lot of questions that, you know, The technology enthusiasts of Bitcoin, because it's such a cool and hot hipster tech, love to write off as, that's the government's problem to figure out, not my own. And you can have that attitude. That's perfectly okay. I'm not telling you what attitude to adopt. I'm just telling you what the realistic blockers are to, you know your mom in in 10 years from now paying at the gas station with a Bitcoin wallet, right? Because that's where people want to go with some of this stuff. Like, honest to God, they want Bitcoin to just run the planet, like get rid of cash, get rid of credit cards. Everything goes into the ether. All hail the Dogecoin. You know, that's an ideology that is part of the evaluation, the crazy evaluations that you're seeing in uh, $20,000 for Bitcoin. Um, If those feelings of warm and fuzziness weren't true, you wouldn't have seen the crazy evaluation and run that you got in the currency. So um, do I think the technology is viable? Absolutely. We're watching it right before our eyes be incredibly viable. Do I think it has a lot of protections and features that we don't necessarily get with our financial institutions today? Yes, but because it's such a more large feature rich environment, I'm going to apply the same advice as earlier in this show is way larger feature set, therefore way larger vulnerability set. And so I just, you know, we struggle enough to keep people's banks accounts from getting drained right now using traditional financial mechanisms. Um, when you start to have large quantities of money moving at, you know, light speed with automated contracts where you're not even the one clicking the button to move the money anymore, computers, you know, doing it for you all the time. Um, yeah, it might make it a little harder to do things like fraud detection um, or audit that you know someone hasn't figured out how to log into your Bitcoin wallet and say bye bye, because I guarantee you the average American, for example, what's one of the number one things they love about putting their money in a bank account? Well, the FDIC insures my bank account up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So if Joe Schmo hacker comes and does a little drain operation, I can say thank you very much, Uncle Sam please fill my bank account back up. And does the FDIC insure Bitcoin wallets? No. So if your Bitcoin wallet is tampered with or you lose that money, you lose that money as of today, right? Like no one's going to come and hold your hand and reinsert the, you know, the 20 Bitcoins that you've earned over time. So I think that is just a, a reality gripper. I don't think it's a... None of the things I'm talking about are blockers to the technology Making it to that level of maturity. I just think that the community has to get more serious about saying, you know, if we want customers to be the everyday consumer, these are the types of issues we have to grapple with Um, in a way that doesn't necessarily subvert the original intent or the original qualities that the technology brought, right? Um, Because I think there are a lot of valid purposes that, you know, some of the features of, of blockchain were designed. I think when we talk about improving the technology platforms itself, Ethereum is the perfect example of where blockchain and cryptocurrency sprawled outside of its original market of being about money. Um, now it's about a lot of other things. Like if you want to build the future decentralized internet and get rid of the gatekeeper model where everyone has a router and everyone guards their little foes, their post and they set their little perimeter fences and picket fences around their own network and you want to go to a decentralized, secure model, Um, Ethereum showed you how you do that on a blockchain. It has nothing to do with money. So it shows that maybe even if there isn't full penetration in the idea of financial markets, you're going to see blockchain and just the the ledger, the distributed ledger itself, be a reusable and recyclable technology that has maybe a lot of other applications that we have not um, fully stumbled upon yet. And I think that's something that has yet to be fully tapped. I think Ethereum and and things like it are still gaining momentum in that space and showing the everyday consumer how they're useful in areas that have nothing to do with money. Um, and finally, as far as you see for things that are kind of the everyday enthusiast with, with cryptocurrency, et cetera, I don't think mining is going away anytime soon. I just think it's a fad. So the fad was a fad when I was in college. I thought it was starting to die off towards the end of college because it was. Then the evaluations got crazy and everyone's like, yeah, let's do this all over again. And then you know, hundreds of new currencies popped up, which have their own new curves for when mining no longer becomes profitable. So it's a game. Actually one of the biggest consequences of mining right now is that graphics cards are insanely expensive when they don't need to be. Why? Because they're artificially driving the prices up because the manufacturers can't keep stock because, you know, folks who will remain unnamed in the average guy community are building cryptocurrency rigs and buying high-end graphic cards that, you know, make the rest of us who just want to power two monitors have to pay more. Um, so those are the kinds of things that are short-term fun and games, but ultimately don't really matter one way or another for whether or not these technologies get adopted.
0: Yeah, no, it's a good, I think that's a really good, um, in 10 or 15 minutes, a really good synopsis of where we're at with it. And I, and I tell you what, it's been, I wouldn't have paid attention if I hadn't gotten involved. And so for me, I, I blew off, I blew off the first three iterations of Bitcoin, like, yeah, no, whatever. And for whatever reason, in the summer, I decided last summer, I decided, you know, i gonna pay attention to this thing. And I caught it right at the beginning of that, you know, of that lift. And it's been a blast. It's been a ton of fun. Like, just from a technology side, it's been great to get involved. Uh, you know, I'm contemplating selling those cards that I bought. I know you weren't talking about me, but selling those cards because they're worth almost twice as much as they were when I bought them. And I'm just kind of like, and I think you're right. I do appreciate you talking about Ethereum because I do think the future of the blockchain is more as a ledger and more of a value um, a, a product. In other words, it tracks things like a database yeah. and value in those things yeah. rather than it being a currency in itself. Right. And whether Ethereum is the one that does it or there's something else that comes along, the, we learned with, with Bitcoin, it's just not scalable. It, we broke it. Like we broke Bitcoin with this run to 20. There were, they had to set these really high exchange or not exchange, but networking rates, right? The network rates to transact and it just didn't work. And people were like, Ooh, yikes. And so I think we, it gets a little scary when we see it as currency, even though we call it cryptocurrency. And I've been really, really careful to just call it crypto at this point, because I don't think it's a good viable currency. Can it act that way? Absolutely. Should it? Mm. That's mm-hmm. a big, gigantic question, and I and I don't, I personally, I don't think it should. Um, I think it's a great platform to transact value, and there's lots of great sure, things there. that in the future it's going to be a part of. That network, because of the way it was built, needs these miners, so to speak, to to mine these blocks for their value, and right. for that should be some value should be exchanged. Sure, and so. We got to figure that part out. Will it settle down? Yeah, I think we're going to get, you know, we're already seeing a whole rash of of ASIC miners come out specialized in a particular uh, blockchain and they just crush all CPUs and we just move on. The advantage has been there's been hundreds of different coins that have been made. So the miners can always go find something. As we were in a run-up, you know, I have four GTX 1060s that I've been mining with. In the run-up, I was doing... You know, ten, fifteen dollars a day. Uh, in the last couple days, yeah, two fifty is is about. You know, maybe two two fifty to five bucks is about the most that can be made. To be honest with you, that's probably the right amount of money to be to yeah. to be involved. And it's it's taking a certain amount of power. And I, you know, there there was some value assigned to these coins because otherwise, no one would have any motivation to do it. Like. Mm-hmm. If you're not, if the community's not helping with it, you have got to give people some kind of incentive. Yeah. And uh and and like anything, that's that that incentive can be traded, bought, sold, traded. It's like any market. It'll settle out. The great part is, is we're in the early days of this and 30 years from now, and I'm not pod well, maybe I will be podcasting 30 years from now, Christian. Maybe it'll be you'll be my age and I'll be Gary's age. No, I'm just kidding. And I um we will be, I remember, and it will be a fairly mature technology and they'll figure out some great stuff and it'll be moving. It won't be the crazy stuff it is today. All these things start exciting, get boring. Yeah. That's kind of pretty much where they go. So I encourage folks, Hey, get in, get involved. It's kind of fun. It's interesting. There's money to be made. There's money to be lost. Um, you know, if you're, I listen to a guy and he always says, look, if you're in this and you can't afford to lose the money, you should not be. Like, oh,
1: for this sure. is
0: interesting. This is I'll what this is new
1: gambling. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, it, it has a lot of the same chemical things in our body that gambling does. And so there's a lot of those same tendencies. JP Morgan, Chase and Bank of America today, all uh, put on cash advance fees now for their credit cards, if it's going to one of the three Bitcoin vendors here in the United States. Now, We'd love to say they did that because they're being they're trying to protect the consumer and like, oh, if we put them on, that'll slow down. No, no, no. This is a money making thing yeah. on their side too. Oh, let's just, yeah, be, yeah, yeah, let's yeah. just be serious, right? Sure. Um so it um certainly it will slow some folks down and it'll have some intended consequences and you know, it'll add a speed bump in it. But it's really interesting. One of the things I've really liked about burst, uh, you know, this is that the the CP or the hard drive mining is that it's an an alt concept to very expensive GPU mining. And so it's a fifth, it's not even, it's a fifth, a sixth, a tenth of the power it takes to run a hard drive versus a GPU and does the same thing. And I think there's very few of these coins that are doing it. And I think there's some interesting, again, will it have value? Who knows? But there's some interesting things when we think about, there are cheaper ways to secure these blocks, right? And so it doesn't always have to be GPUs running it 250 watts doing their thing, right? That's the way we do it today. Doesn't always have to be that way. And so could be some interesting technologies that arise in the future that to make it more eco-friendly. Because today, not so eco-friendly. But I remember, and I don't remember, there were days in Omaha here when they'd burn coal 24-7 and it would fill the cloud, the the skies with smoke, but that's all they knew. It was really expensive. It was terribly un- uh, Not good for the environment, right? But then they kind of started figuring out new ways. Oh, hey, if we don't do coal, if we burn, you know, these kinds of things, uh, we're better off. And I think we'll find that day with crypto. I do. I think we'll find in the blockchain. It's got so many good things it could do. I think we'll find the good things and the cruft will go to the side. I think so. So anything else as we wrap it? No, I think that's a pretty good uh, assessment on where we're at. Yeah. Amazing. We made it an hour. What do you know? (laughs) Um, It's almost like we know what we're doing. (laughs) Almost like we've done a few of these. If you missed Christian's synopsis of of Spectre and Meltdown, uh, it's in the last episode. So this is 43 and 42. We spent a bunch of time talking about that. So if you're wondering what he was talking about, really worth going back and covering it. Uh, It was in real time. Weren't a lot of things that we knew about it, but uh, we covered it for a whole hour so. Head back to 42. Don't forget the average Guy.TV is powered by Maple Grove Partners. Secure, reliable, high speed hosting from people that you know across there and trust. And a plan starts as little as $10 a month if you want to jump on the revolution in Boom. web hosting. Oh, I shouldn't say. Maybe, that was, maybe I stretched it a little too far. Head out to Maple. <laughs> Can I call it a revolution in web I hosting? Mean-
1: I don't know if I can, you know, put in our SLA that you're going to be able to, you know, measure revolutionary hosting. I can promise that it's going to be a good experience, and I'm a nice guy, and I generally know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, but you know, revolutionary. Maybe if I'm hosting your website on Ethereum, I can I can stretch
0: and use that word. But when will I get a blockchain based website? You no, know, we're
1: just we're not close on that offering yet. I don't want to get everyone excited and you know say that that's
0: coming, but um. I want some Christian coin. I, I want it, and I want it now. How long is it going to take for you to have your own blockchain? You could make your own blockchain.
1: I, I could, but I don't know if I want that level of operational burden in my daily life. You know, like I, I just imagine a bunch of angry people from all over the country when, you know, the first crash
0: of the Christian coin happens. Um, you, you don't want that, Jim. They don't, they don't crash. If you're if you're want Christian coin, Christian at the Average Guy TV, <laughs> send them a note. Just let them know you're in favor and you'll help secure the network by being a node.
1: Uh, let's Christian. put it up to a vote. I think that's <laughs> the best way to do it.
0: Christian at TV would get that as well. And if you do have any questions, you can send those uh, really for this program. Best to send them to Christian. We can we bring those in and talk about them here in the show. He loves to get your email. Track him down on Twitter, Board Whisperer. Well, glad you joined us. Gary, thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Always good to have you out there as well. We'll be back. We're trying to do these every couple weeks, but we just had a travel schedule. And actually last week I was hanging out here sure at his place and we just couldn't get it done. So we'll try and do these every couple weeks. Thanks for listening. Without say good night. Good night.